Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. The 93rd Annual Academy Awards are set to take place on April 25th, this coming Sunday, and I will freely admit that I plan to watch every minute of the show, which is being produced by the great Steven Soderbergh and will not have a traditional host, but instead a cluster of stars as its, quote, cast, unquote. Brad Pitt, Renee Zellweger, Joaquin Phoenix, Laura Dern, Don Cheadle, Brian Cranston, Regina King, Reese Witherspoon, etc., etc., etc. The movie with the most nominations this year, with 10, is Mank, David Fincher's film for Netflix about the making of Citizen Kane. Then there are several movies with six nominations, the most interesting of which, for our purposes here on Hell and High Water, is Judas and the Black Messiah, the story of Fred Hampton, 21-year-old chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party and his assassination in 1969 by the Chicago Police Department and the FBI. The movie is unlike almost anything ever to come out of Hollywood. It has been widely hailed by critics since its release in February on HBO Max and a few theaters that were open at the time. Judas's half-dozen Oscar nominations are the biggies. Best Picture, two Best Supporting Actor nominations for Daniel Kaluuya, who's already won a Golden Globe and a Critics' Choice Award in that category for playing Fred Hampton. For Lakeith Stanfield as William O'Neill, the FBI informant who rats out Hampton. There are also nominations for Best Cinematography, Best Original Song, and last but not least, Best Original Screenplay, which brings us to our episode today on which we have two of the four guys behind the script. The two who first had the idea of making a movie about Fred Hampton and who also happen to be amazing comedic talents. Yes, I said comedic, and also happen, even more incredibly, to be identical twin brothers, Keith and Kenny Lucas, a.k.a. the Lucas Brothers. Here's Kenny. The state of our union is in flux. We just got out of a situation with the president who was an incompetent fool who was racist. And now we're in a transition period where, you know, there's still some time to see whether or not Biden delivers and lives up to the very heavy situation that we placed upon him. But we're very much in flux, and I'm I'm concerned, but I'm also optimistic. And here's Keith. The state of Black America is a bit confounding. On, on one end, there's reason to be very hopeful. There's reason to believe that there's more progress to be had. And we've seen a lot of progress in our communities. But on the other end, it's like there's still a ton of police brutality, a ton of racism, a ton of inequalities that I think we will continue to have to fight against. So yeah, I guess a bit hopeful, but still a lot of uh, fighting to, to be done. If you don't already know about the Lucas brothers, you are in for a treat today. Born into rough family circumstances in Newark, New Jersey in 1985 at a time when that city, in the midst of the crack epidemic and a ferocious wave of gang violence, was a reasonable facsimile of hell on earth, Lucas Brothers made their way together to the College of New Jersey, where they both earned degrees in philosophy. Then they both went to law school, Kenny at NYU and Keith at Duke, and both dropped out days before graduating. They both struggled with addiction, depression, and suicidal ideation. And then they both turned to stand-up comedy as a twins act, of course, often wearing identical clothing on stage, making it difficult to tell them apart but producing a shitload of laughs. Then they went on to appear together in 22 Jump Street with Channing Tatum and Jonah Hill, created and voiced the awesome animated show Lucas Brothers Moving Company, and then broke through big time with their 2017 Netflix stoner comedy special, Lucas Brothers on Drugs. 
Given most of this backstory, you would not have figured Kenny and Keith were the guys who would spend a decade pursuing the quixotic quest of getting Hollywood to make a movie about a little known and less understood piece of black political history, a story animated by militant ideology and centered on a self-styled revolutionary. But that is exactly who the Lucas brothers are, or at least part of who they are. As you will soon discover, Kenny and Keith are a whole lot of things. They are deadly serious and hella funny, righteously pissed off about the state of things in America right now, especially when it comes to race, but also incredibly optimistic, insightful, and more ambivalent than you might imagine about a topic that has been at the center of their comedy and their lives, drugs, humble about their work, but also lit up with ambition, especially after the out-of-nowhere success of Judas. They have also, it must be said, seen and lived some serious shit in their 35 years on planet Earth. I went into this conversation a huge fan of Kenny and Keith and really looking forward to talking with them for the first time. Our conversation was wide-ranging, fascinating, engrossing, and a whole lot of fun. I came out of it not just a bigger fan of theirs, but convinced that anyone who hears our talk will feel the same way. And the fact that the Lucas brothers are out there doing their thing, making us laugh, and making us think gives me just a little more hope that we're all going to make it through hell and high water. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. The Black Badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I will learn. These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can murder revolutionary, but you can't murder revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. So that's the trailer for Judas and the Black Messiah, a movie that has generated a huge amount of critical uh, acclaim and buzz and a lot of award nominations, including at the upcoming Oscars. And we are here with two of the nominated part of the nominated team behind that movie, the Lucas Brothers, Kenny and Keith Lucas. It's great to see you guys. Hey, we're going to struggle throughout this entire podcast and trying to figure <laughs> out which the fuck one of you is which the fuck one. And we'll get into this because there's some really interesting. Oh, I love that dog behind Keith Lucas. Plato. <laughs> hey, Plato. Say hi. Plato, like the philosopher. Like, like the philosopher. philosopher. Okay. So, you know. He may start barking, but, you know, that's just what dogs do sometimes. 
that's all right. I have two Great Danes. Ooh. One of them's named Fife Dog and the other is named Dizza. Oh, Fife. And they yeah. are good looking dogs. Yeah. <laughs> but if they are in the room, that's the only thing you talk about because right. Right, of course. they are not philosophers. So uh, just a good place to start here is how does it feel to be Academy Award nominees? It feels great. I mean, it's like one of those things where you're like, man, if that ever happened, I'd have to change some things in my life. I never expected it to happen. Like when, when we were conceiving of the idea, working with Shaka, working with Will and, and going through the motions and the process, all we wanted to do was make a good film to honor Fred's legacy. So to be acknowledged in such a fashion, it's like, it feels good, man. I ain't, I ain't gonna lie. It feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's an honor and a privilege. It's, uh, you, you know, you dream about things like this happening, but when we were you know, going through the development process and you, you can't even, I didn't even imagine it would happen. So the fact that it did happen is still kind of startling to me, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a privilege. It's an unlikely movie to have gotten made. And that's kind of what I want to start talking about at the beginning here. And I just, I'll say that it's the names here. Shaka King is the director of the movie who Kenny mentioned. Will Burson is the one of the screenwriters on the movie and Fred Hampton, who uh, is the focal point. The, I don't want to say the star exactly, but Fred Hampton, uh, sure. chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party in the late 60s, who's the focus of the movie. Right. And I'm curious about you guys, just to go back, I've heard you guys tell the origin story of this a little bit, but I'd love to talk about it some more Sure, sure. because I'm older than you guys are. And when I was a college student in the mid 1980s, I was at Northwestern University Oh, nice! in this very beginning of the time when you could take a class in the history department called the sixties. Yeah. That was the first time I think about when that first ever happened. People were like, oh, the sixties is history. There's a little bit far <laughs> enough away from that. Right, right, right. And if you took the history class that I took in my junior or senior year in the 60s. There was a day devoted to the Black Panthers. Mm. And I don't know, you guys, because you're younger, I don't know whether, I know you first, I think, learned about the Black Panthers in college. Right. But I'm just curious how you came to that. Right. And then how the idea for the movie started. Right. So we were in college. It was our sophomore year, mm -hmm. 2004. And my brother and I were taking an African-American studies course. Professor Chris Fisher, great guy. And it was a course that pretty much examined African-American history from post-Reconstruction up until the late 60s, early 70s. So just right around the time where the Chicago chapter was flourishing and then ultimately they were taken down by the FBI. So we came across Fred that year. Like that was the first time I'd ever heard of Fred Hampton. I, I didn't know my knowledge of the Black Panthers were Oakland, Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, you know, Elbridge Cleaver, Soul on Ice. Yeah, yeah, like the pivotal figures. Right. So I didn't know about the Chicago chapter. I didn't know that there were chapters in New York. I didn't know there were chapters in Newark. I just didn't know the Panthers were that extensive. And my only interaction with the Panthers from a media standpoint was uh, two things. The Black Panther movie that came out in 96, which I didn't watch all of it. Was it 96? 95. 95. And then Forrest Gump. So I'm like, okay, my, my, <laughs> that was it. I didn't know about, I, that was Panther. So you know, once you I read up, it. You grew up in Newark, New Jersey, which is a very radical city. Yes. Right. Home of Mary Baraka, who basically was one of the founders of the Black Arts Movement. So it's not like we didn't grow up around, you know, Black history and, and learning about some of the pivotal figures in our history. We did have that, but somehow we didn't come across Fred Hampton until college. Yeah. So we, there's this chapter on Hampton. Much like it was a day yeah. devoted to them, we spent some time on Hampton. And, and even when we came across Hampton's story in college, no mention of Will O'Neill. Will O'Neill was still a ghost to us. I had no idea who he was. Right. But Hampton's story was always crazy to me because the FBI 
you know, facilitated this man's murder. I mean, essentially helped to get him murdered. And so I'm just like, why aren't more people talking about this? Like, right. this is fucking crazy. He's 21 years old. Right. He's sleeping next to his pregnant girlfriend and the FBI and the Chicago Police Department basically assassinated him. Right. It, it was just a jarring story. It made me think. It made me sad because I was 20 at the time. Yep. I was also I was dabbling in Marxism. So I was like, I, I, spiritually, I was a little connected to him. So his story always stuck with us. And then when we got into Hollywood, when we got into entertainment, we were like, we want to get his story made into a film. It has to get done. You know what I mean? You know, it's interesting just because the Panthers were obviously a, at the time and even to some extent subsequently, right, were kind of iconic in a way. Right. And people know Huey Newton. That's a name that's pretty well known among right. people right. who have an education, right? Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver, because of Soul on Ice was a huge right. bestselling book. Right. And people know that history. And I'm curious why it was. Was it partly the fact that Fred, just to be just to, for anybody who hasn't seen the movie, the basic story here is Fred Hampton, young, charismatic chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party. He's not just not. You said basically assassinated. Kenny is uh, is assassinated. He's assassinated. Yeah, yeah. Targeted by the FBI for assassination. Right. Killed in a brutal way. Very brutal. You know, 90 some bullets in his bed. Right. With the help of an informer played by Lakeith, who's in the movie, who plays William O'Neill, who's the informant. Right. And so this is a true crime drama right. and a heavily political true crime drama. Right. But I, I guess the question that I wanted to ask is, even though Huey Newton, Bobby Seale, Eldridge Cleaver are better known Still not people who have been covered really well by Hollywood. Right, right. I'm curious why you settled on Fred rather than some of these other characters in the Black Panther movement who were right. better known and maybe a little more accessible and sellable in the Hollywood context. Right. I Well, I think for me, and I don't want to speak for Shaka, Will, or Keith, but for me, his story, honestly, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, it was perfect Aristotelian storytelling when you really think about it, how you get in with William O'Neill, how you see the rise of Fred Hampton, and then you see his ultimate assassination and you see William O'Neill sort of struggling with the guilt of having to take down this great man. It was almost Shakespearean, in my opinion. So his story, even though it was brief, it had all of the foundations for a traditional story that could be made into a film. Whereas with Huey Newton, there's some aspects there where you can tell a story, but it's all over the place, really. I feel like for a Huey you know, Newton story, you got to like pick a moment in his life and right. sort of focus on that because he lived a, a longer life than Hampton and it would be more sprawling. It didn't, with Bobby Seale, I mean, even more sprawling right. because he, he's still alive. So, yeah, it's just about like trying to figure out, you know, what's the most effective and most efficient story you can tell. Right. And when we stumbled upon a William O'Neill interview, it all just kind of clicked to us. We were like, oh, this is the way we can tell Fred's story by going through the perspective of the snitch. Now you have a genre film. Now you have something that's not a conventional biopic. And you have something that can operate on two levels. It can operate as a thriller, but it can also operate as a movie that's politically charged. I mean, I think for people who aren't in this game, the notion of, you know, how little you can do in a two-hour movie is people don't understand it. And part of the thing is, the tight narrative works in that context. Now, obviously, we now have limited series right. and unlimited series. And, you know, there's obviously television and in peak television. We now have the capacity to tell incredibly long, intricate stories that go on over years and years. Right. But if you're thinking about that 90 minute to 120 minute long feature film, right. you don't have a lot of space to work with there. You don't. And so there's a tight narrative kind of quality to this that's powerful. And, you know, the O'Neill thing. So you guys stumbled upon upon William O'Neill in Eyes on the Prize, right? Right. That's the 
you know, Henry Hampton's famous documentary about the modern black experience. And right. again, it's one of those things I think back to, I remember watching Eyes on the Prize when it first came on PBS hmm. and it was, again, iconic. I mean, right. you know, it was like in that category of things like Roots, not right. quite as big as Roots, but right. for a lot of white people in particular, it was a big door that got opened into, you know, the first big swing mm. at a multi-part documentary on this topic. When did you guys first run across that? Was it in researching Hampton or was that something you guys had come across in your lives otherwise? I mean, Eyes on a Prize was in our community. We and People knew about it. It was just two years after we were born in 85. So it was 87, right? So yep. we were just too young to appreciate it. But we'd read, we were reading this book called The Assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas. He was a people's lawyer, so he, he represented Fred Hampton. So he was very familiar with the story. And he wrote this amazing, uh, it was not a memoir, it's like a... No, it was just like basically laying out the whole story of Fred. and But it was almost like a legal document because he talked about what happened after Fred got murdered. And all of the, you know, the legal battles and the court battles that they had. Right. You know, that another story in and of itself. Right, right. It took 10 years, essentially a decade, to get any sort of justice, and if you want to call it that. But yeah, so we read that one, and there was a couple pages on William O'Neill. Yeah, so it, in that book, we came across William O'Neill, and that was 2012. And then after that, we, were like, we went on a deep dive, trying to find all the information that we can on William O'Neill, because it was just fascinating to us that this guy pretended to be a panther for all that time, yeah. and then helped to get this man killed. I'm like, this guy is very complex and intriguing, and would be a great cinema character. So we looked for information on him and we couldn't find anything. No no books, no. Uh, we found a few articles about his death and then we came across his Eyes on the Price transcript and it was like, blew our minds. We were like, holy shit, he's laying out the story beat by beat. He's literally giving us a film right there. It's like in our hands, we had the film in our hands. And I was like, this is it, this is it. Yep. That's a moment right. when you research, when you pop on something like that and you go, oh, fuck, right. here it is, right? Right. Yeah. And this is a very, I mean, a morally complex character, or maybe not so much. He's actually not all that morally complex, but he becomes really interesting for his, <laughs> the way he is seduced right. into, right. I mean, he's forced into doing this thing because to not have to face prison time, he does the thing. And in a way, he's kind of like, well, I don't know. Let, let me just talk about the characters first. We'll get to William O'Neill in a second, but just come back to the origin story just in this, right? So- you know, you guys have this idea for a movie. You've got this story now mm -hmm. and you go out to take this thing to Hollywood. Right. right? And the reaction to it is what? Well, <laughs> first, you know, we'd find this transcript and we wrote a bunch of outlines using Save the Cat and using Dan Harmon's story circle just to try to get a, you know, a rough understanding of what the story could be. We put it into like a two page pitch doc and we went around town. And uh, it was it was a harsh reality. Like, oh, yeah, this is not a movie that's going to be easily made. Right. We heard all types of things like period pieces are too expensive. Right. This is about a black socialist who dies at the end. Like what market told, told from the perspective of a horrible per like our right. protagonist is evil. Right. And we're like, but this is complex cinema. This is like this is where we want to go. We don't want a cookie cutter protagonist. We want someone who's morally ambiguous. And, and so the audience has to choose where they stand. Like, we want complex cinema. And they were like, well, that's not going to sell. And we we're like, okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's just rejection after rejection after rejection. It was bad. Yeah, we, were going, we went to studios, we went to production companies. We were going all across town. And uh, yeah, it was a humbling experience because, you know, <laughs> we were very confident in the idea. We thought that it was great and we pitched our hearts out. But it was just like, sometimes... You know, you just need a little bit more when you're trying to sell an idea like this. Right. You can't just 
sell it off a pitch, you need to make sure the package is as great as it can be. And even once we had Shaka, Will, you know, Kugler, Charles King, and we had all those people attached, it was still very difficult to get right. funding. So every stage was a, was another obstacle. But at that stage, when we were getting rejections, it was brutal. I mentioned the, the, the nomination, right, which is congratulations. You. And, Thanks. you know, it's obviously a first, the first time there's an all-black-led production team that right. have uh, have a, a nominee for Best Picture. The movie's nominated for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, two Best Supporting Actor nominations right. for Daniel Kaluuya and, and Lakeith Stanfield. Right. Original screenplay, cinematography, original song, you know, a lot of accolades. The thing you said a second ago, Keith, about you need something more, the something more for you guys was Will and Chaka, who were... I guess on this path, kind of were finding their way towards this path on their own. How did you right. guys come together in a way that the combo made the ultimate thing that got sold? So Will was already working on his own Fred Hampton script while we were generating our idea. And we were fortunate enough to come across Shaka. Uh, we were working on this FX pilot. 2016, it was for uh, this Killer Mike pilot, which eventually went to Netflix. Shaka was directing and we were acting in it. And we just like, we spent like a whole day with him. We just liked him. Like he was a nice dude. He was clearly a genius. He spoke our language. We vibed. He's from Brooklyn. We're from Newark. So we're Northeast kids. And also Will's from New York. So we're all Northeast kids. We're all from comedy. So I think it was just like a vibe with that. We met him. We were like, we got to pitch him this idea. We need this guy to help us get to the next level because he has the tools to get us there. Well, we didn't pitch it to him immediately. We waited <laughs> We waited a couple yeah, of sure. months before we were like, hey, Shaka, come to our apartment and let's talk about this idea. I mean, as always in all these stories, there's some good fortune and, and coming across someone like Will who's ready on the same topic. You already have somebody. You're able to kind of join forces. You guys become kind of a super group here right, right. on getting this thing together. And it obviously has, you know, there's challenges you guys faced in the context of putting it out in the pandemic. Totally. It becomes one of these projects that doesn't get into cinemas. It gets onto streaming. Right. I mean, it gets into cinemas to the extent that there were cinemas to go to, but not really in a serious way. Was that at all to you guys from the standpoint of, I mean, it seems ridiculous given how much praise this movie's generated and how much love it's getting, right. but were you disappointed at all in that, you know, when most people set out to have a long held dream to make a, a major feature motion picture, their dream is, right. you know, the Pacific Cinerama Dome. You yeah. want to be up on the big screen with a big right. crowd in the dark on a Friday night. Right. How much of a drag was that for you guys to end up going the new way that, HBO Max and those guys have gone. I mean, you know, real talk is like, I grew up loving the cinema, going to the theaters, and of course you want your film to, you know, I wanted the experience of being with the cast and the crew at a premiere, just yeah. to be able to have that moment with them. You know, that's that's the one I, I miss the most. But with that said, it's like, you know, this is a tough movie to make and it's a tough movie to watch. And I, I always wonder, like, if we did put it out in the theaters, you know, would we have had as many people see it? You know what I mean? Like being able to watch it in the comfort of your own home. In a pandemic. Then during the yeah. pandemic, I think certainly encouraged more people to watch it. And again, once you get six Oscar nominations, it's hard to complain about whatever happened. It's like, you know, we got to the promised land. And also we made a great film. And I think that that was the, the ultimate goal, make the best film that we can make. And however it gets distributed, it gets distributed. But hopefully the, the movie is of quality and it can be watched on small screens, big screens, drive-ins, wherever. Let me play one scene here. You know, the, one of the through lines in this movie is Hampton's oratorical power. He's a compelling uh, figure and a great speaker. Mm -hmm. The first time we see him on a stage, 
in the movie is the scene that we're about to play the sound from. So let's, this is the, the introduction of Fred Hampton as oratorical genius. I am proud to introduce Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. I don't need no mic. Can y'all hear me? Yeah. Malcolm X College, y'all can dig it. Dr. Charles Hurst, direct from Howard. Right on. <laughs> so what? You think the students over there are gonna be free now? Oh, they'll let you change the name of your college or your own name. Throw on a dashiki. Because guess what? They still gonna drag your black ass to Vietnam to shoot a poor rice farmer get shot your damn self. That's the difference between revolution and the candy-coated facade of gradual reform. Reform is just the masters teaching the slaves how to be better slaves. Under reform, you can take the motherfucking masters out and the slaves still be doing all the work for them. There's a man called a capitalist. Don't matter what color he is, black, white, brown, red, don't matter. Because the capitalist has one goal, and that is to exploit the people. He can have on a three-piece suit or dashiki, because political power doesn't flow from the sleeve of a dashiki. Political power flows from the barrel of a gun. So there he is, Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton, his first big speech in the movie. I assume like everybody else, you're blown away by his performance. But talk to me a little bit about the power of Fred as a character, as a figure in our political history. Shaka says this so much, and it's so true. He says he was the fifth writer of our screenplays. Fred's words are so powerful and so potent and so just aspirational, inspirational, and when you hear them, you're moved. I mean, we had the great fortune of being on set during the I Am A Revolutionary speech, and I kid you not, when Daniel was delivering that speech, it felt like I was in Chicago in the late 60s. All the people were just clapping. He got an applause break. It just moved me. Like, working on this subject, hearing Fred's words and going through this process, man, like, you can't help but be a changed person. Like, I think I came into the process a little bit more egotistical. I think I came into the process a little bit more selfish, a little bit more like, what can I get out of it? How much money am I going to make? Can I get that? And then as I've gone through this process, none of that shit matters to me. Like, I I couldn't care less about any of it. Like, all I want to do now is like, I want to make sure we honor this man's legacy because his words are so meaningful and so uplifting. And if we can create a platform for his message, then I think we've done our job, right? Like if we can create a film that really sort of displays his life in an accurate way, where people are taken by his words, then we've done our job effectively. And I I hope that that's what we did. I I pray that that's what we did. Keith, I I ask you like one of the things that the power of this movie, right, is it's not like just that if you're on the left or African-American or where your sympathies lie. The reality is that the ultimate testament to Fred Hampton's power is the fact that he got killed, right? It's like Hoover was afraid of Fred Hampton. Now we can talk about Hoover's various psychoses and his various obsessiveness and, you know, obviously his murderousness in the sense that (laughs) through Quantel Pro, he's identifying a black street politician and deciding he needs to be killed. But that is in some ways a testament to what this archetype of racist 
law enforcement in the right. well, not I was going to say in the sixties, but really Hoover dominates American law enforcement for forty years. Right. Yeah. He's obsessed with the notion that this guy, the Black Panthers in general, but this guy in particular, is a threat to the established order to the point where he's like, I'm going to go infiltrate this organization and I'm going to go, I'm going to assassinate this guy. And again, I say in a weird, twisted way, that's kind of a testament to the fact that Fred was obviously to a lot of people potent. Mm. Yeah, he was a powerful, powerful figure and he, he made a lot of people terrified. And that was in large part, not just because of his oratory skills, but it's his skills as an organizer, his ability to bring different kinds of people together to focus on the actual problems. He was able to like sort of cut through the differences and bring people together to focus on what the actual issues are. And I think that that terrified Hoover and not just Hoover, but, you know, the Chicago uh, political establishment. Hammerhan and, and Daly and the Chicago Police Department, there were a lot of people who were terrified of his abilities. And like you said, it's a testament to his power as a person. We started to talk a little bit earlier about William O'Neill, and I, I want to come back to it now because another great performance by Lakeith in there in that role, but also super important in the sense that you guys talked about this being a genre movie and with also this obviously important political overlay you know, the the thing that, that O'Neill gives you is the ability to get inside the FBI, right? He opens the door into this other world and, you know, it kind of gives you that access point. He's a nexus. Yes. So, Kenny, like, just talk a little bit about, like, I mean, I, I said before something about moral complexity about William O'Neill. Mm. What do you guys make of him and having studied these guys so much and, you know, the that Eyes on the Prize transcript being so pivotal to the creation of of the story what do you now on reflection as you've seen this thing realized, what do you think of, of William O'Neill? What are we to make of him as a character and as a figure in this drama? Right. It's a very challenging to say where I stand from a moral standpoint, because on the one hand, his actions directly led to the assassination of a great man. And I think he ultimately set our community back by a couple of decades because we lost such a great organizer and orator and leader. So I'm disgusted by him, naturally. But yeah. on the other hand, it's like he was 17, 18. He had a he had a criminal record. You have the FBI approaching you saying, look, if you don't do X, you're going to Y is going to happen. So on at that level, I'm like, shit, I don't know what I would have done if I was 17 with a charge and the FBI said, do this. Are you going to go to prison for five years? I can't say I wouldn't have done it. So yeah, but it's like the same thing happened to Hampton. He had right, right, right. the cops saying that he's going to do five years if he doesn't do X and he was willing to take the time. So it's like, ultimately, it depends on how you're built. And right. uh, O'Neill wasn't built strong. He was a coward. You know, obviously, I understand the circumstances. Yes, tough circumstances to be in. But you have to recognize, man, that, you know, this is Fred Hampton we're talking about. This is a man who the community needed. And so he should have been willing to take those years. I agree. I'm just saying, I'm just saying I am disgusted by his actions. And I, and I think he is a coward. And what he did was heinous. And I, he's complicit in the murder. I'm just saying I have more context now. And I think I think as a character in a film, he's a nuanced character because he's grappling with these two for extremes. Sure, for, sure, for sure. You know what I mean? So it's not like when I first came across William O'Neill, I was disgusted. I was right, like, right. I, are we really going to center a movie <laughs> around this guy? But like you said it takes the film to another level. Right. You're getting into the mind of the FBI 
you have their full operation laid out through this character. So it was a necessary move to make this movie right. exceptional. If, if we hadn't gone that way, I can't say the movie would have been as complex. I, I don't. I have no evidence to prove that, but I do believe right. going through Williams' perspective did add another level of nuance to the film. Would have sure. been a more conventional biopic right. and, and potentially very good, but a lot more right. conventional than it right. is. Let me ask you one last question about the movie and and then we'll take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit about you guys and about comedy and some other stuff. But, you know, it's now been out for some months and a lot of people have seen it. And, you know, when you live with a project, as long as you guys live with this project, you know, dating back as many years as you have, you feel like you're like you've thought about it from every angle, like you've considered it in every way. Like, you know, you know, the characters inside and out, you know, the movie inside and out. And then right. at least my experience with books and, and television and other things I've been involved in is that you put the thing out in the world and then people have a reaction to it and you go, wow, I never thought of that. Like, hey, right. you know, you're hearing all kinds of things from people that surprise you in terms of they see things that you never saw, even though you stared at right. it every day. Right. You know, every waking hour for a decade or something, you're right, like, oh, right. wow, huh, interesting. That I didn't really think about that. So I'm curious if there's anything about the reaction that you've heard and people's assessments of the movie and how they've reacted to it that have surprised you and and maybe even taken your guys' understanding yeah. of what you made to a different place. Right. No, man, it's been a whirlwind. I mean, you because you, you create in a vacuum. We're talking to Shaka. We're talking to Will, Charles, Ryan, and, and we're creating this film And you don't know how people are going to take it. You believe that you're going into it with the right energy and the right mindset. So everyone's going to love it. So it was a little shocking when when some of the criticisms were, oh, why did they go from the perspective of William O'Neill? Do we need that character? Well, he took away from Fred. So a lot of those criticisms really like took me aback. I'm like, well, yeah, no, Fred's story is just as important as Will. But this is the way we're presenting the film. And, And why aren't you judging the film holistically? Why are you focusing on the part where you disagree and... So it was another level of film criticism that I just wasn't prepared for. So it took me a little aback, but but ultimately I'm like, we got six nominations, so I think we did the right thing. But uh, I was a little taken aback by that. Yeah, I always felt like once the movie was out, people would move away from the criticism of Daniel being British. But even after we got great reviews and got the Oscar nods, there's still people out there you know, wondering why we cast a British person. I'm like, yo, he killed it. <laughs> like, it's one of the greatest performances of this year, if not of the decade. And it's like, we chose Daniel because Daniel's uh, an exceptional actor. And and, <laughs> and Shaka was, was an intuitive feeling for him, and he, and he knew it, and it paid off. And I think Kaluuya was the perfect, was the only person that could play him, to be honest. I, I can't even right. see anyone else playing for him because Kaluuya is so... Phenomenal. So there, there are little things like that, but I do like the the letterbox community. They tend to be very, very uh, insightful with their criticisms, and so it's been interesting. I'm amazed that anybody is nit would. I mean, I don't know. People find shit to nitpick about no matter what, but like always, I mean, always the idea that the idea that you're like Dan Kaluuya, man, he's British. Like that's I can't even. Believe, I've never heard that criticism. I've never heard that come it's up. Crazy. You guys obviously yeah, are that, that, more, was, that was a huge point of contention. Even <laughs> when we did the first press release couple years, I mean, it was like 2019, right? And people were just like, that was the first thing, the first real criticism that we got was like Kaluuya's playing Fred Hampton. And some people were pissed, but... And then the other thing was, how could you go from the perspective of a snitch? Right. That that was a criticism that I was like, these people, either they don't understand cinema history or they're yeah. just dense. And I'm like, I can't... It was a very frustrating. I'm like, we went from the perspective of a snitch because we're telling a fucking crime epic. It's right. like... Y- y- 
you got to go from the perspective of a criminal if you're telling a crime epic. I mean, I don't know. It's just like having to explain to people why we made certain moves was becoming very frustrating. So when we were finally validated by the Academy and then when Lakeith got a fucking best supporting actor, I was like, all right, now do you guys understand why we did what we did? Because yeah. we made the movies much better now. You guys are much more polite than me. I would have just said, shut the fuck up. <laughs> people, so. um, that's sort of been my response to that. Um, it's my fucking movie. I made it our right, fucking movie. Right. We made it the way right. you want to make that's, it. Go that's, fuck, that's go that's fuck yourself. I wanted to say, like, go fuck yourself. But it's like, you know, you got to be diplomatic these days. But yeah, apparently. Uh, well, we're, we're going to talk about diplomacy and other matters in a moment. So I'm going to take a quick break. We're going to air a couple advertisements for this podcast. And then we'll come back and talk about the lives, the joint conjoined lives of Kenny and Keith Lucas. Uh, here on Hell and High Water. Uh, hey guys, how, how you guys doing? doing? All right, cool. We're twins, by the way. Yeah, you guys yep. are wondering. Here's a little known fact about us: our father went to prison for like 20 years, and we don't know what he did. Nope. Uh, we did a little bit of research, found out in order to get 20 years in the state of New Jersey, you can do one of four things: you can commit first-degree murder, second-degree murder child molestation, or tax evasion. So we immediately got rid of tax evasion, right? <laughs> he was broke all the time. That left us with three choices, all pretty terrible. Yeah. But I feel like this might be the only situation where you kind of hope your father's a murderer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's true. It's true. Uh, but once our father left us, we needed something to fill the void. So we did what any young black dude would do in that situation. We turned to Space Jam. Yeah. Yeah. It's the greatest movie of all time. It is. It is. Some people say that it's the Citizen Kane of Michael Jordan movies. Okay. We totally agree. Absolutely. That was, that was better than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a number oh of things God. to say about that. We're back with the Lucas Brothers uh, on Hell and High Water. And uh, there's a number of things to say about that. Number one, and this is going to get to the twins thing real quick, because right now you're sitting here in front of me. It's easy. We're in different clothes. One of you guys got glasses right. on. The other doesn't. I was asking Kenny, Keith, before you came on whether if you guys were naked and I knew you, I could tell the difference between the two of you. And he said, definitely. And I don't want to know exactly why, um, but uh, we won't go there. But I, I think, you know, you guys were at that point with that stand up, you guys were playing very hard into the we're twins thing. Right. Like you were dressed in the right, same right. suits and your vocal affect is exactly the same. You guys are both like trying to be almost indistinguishable. It'll be hard for people listening to this to know which one of you was which in that bit. So I want to just ask, you know, the the twins thing is central, you know, to what you guys do now. But the other thing in that clip is you're telling a story that's kind of a, you're telling kind of a dark story there about your dad. So sure. just talk to us a little bit about your guys childhood and how the kind of interesting path by which you guys ended up doing what you're doing, which frankly, although Judas and the Black Black Messiah has now made you guys pretty famous because of the Academy Award <laughs> nomination, you guys are really sure. in, in the game of comedy and primarily um, have been. And the path you followed to getting there was not exactly like a traditional standard path towards stand-up comedy. So I'm just like, right. take me back to growing up in New Jersey as twins and how you guys yeah. made the, the long path to where you are now. Yeah, man. I mean, it, it starts in Newark. It starts in the Garden Spires, 1985, crack epidemic. 
you know, Newark is going through this weird transition from post-riots, you know, 70s, we, we sort of on, we're on a decline. We get Mayor Sharp James in 86, and he's a guy from the old guard, but he has his issues with corruption. So Newark is like this really turbulent place at this time. It's dominated by the drug trade. And, uh, you know, our father, a couple of other uncles, a couple of cousins, they get involved in the drug trade. And our dad is like a facilitator for a drug operation. He's acting as an enforcer and, you know, doing what he has to do to survive. You know, he's a young black dude. He has a growing family and, you know, he got caught up in that shit. And so he he leaves us when we're one years old, like we're one. He has to flee from Newark to go down to Alabama because he gets involved in this sort of uh, this gang war. So he leaves us when we were one. And that's the first time he left us. And then he comes back. And our mom and our father are already, you know, going through like turbulence. They have a strained relationship. She hates our father because he's like, he's, 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 a, he's wild. But we have a pretty good relationship with our dad at that point when he comes back. He takes us to the movies. We love our dad. We look up to him. He's a, a pivotal figure in our lives. And he means a lot to us. But he eventually gets arrested when we're six. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you know, there was some hope that maybe he'll beat his charge or maybe the jury might not find him guilty. But he goes to trial. They find him guilty. And he, he gets 20 years. 20 years, right? 15 to 20. 15 to 20 years. And that's like, that's a blow to us because we're already living in the Garden State Spire as a housing project. No money. What was the charge? It was a couple of charges. So he had a gun charge. He had an assault with a deadly weapon. Mm-hmm. I think it was an attempted murder charge, too. But I, attempt, yeah. It was attempted murder because he had already had a couple of charges up until that point. So it was also that three-strike shit, right, mm-hmm. at that point? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, mm-hmm. they bring down the hammer. But we thought that maybe he might get five years or maybe he'll get, you know, a couple of years. They give him 20. And so that shit was devastating. And our mom, at that point, when we were first born up until about six or five, she's receiving government assistance. She eventually transitions out, gets a job with the VA hospital, but we're still living paycheck to paycheck. You know, we're still living in uh, a government housing and, and, and we're still dirt poor. We're still in the underclass. Like we're still struggling for basic necessities. So around the age of 10, our mom, she sees the landscape. Uh, this is after one of the bloodiest years in Newark history. Right, right. 95. Right. Just a, just a lot of deaths and right. murders were just spiking. It was incredible just how, how much murder happened in the early 90s in Newark. And I think uh, our mom just, she had enough of it. So uh, so what, what happened in Newark was there was this drug dealer by the name of Akbar Prey. He pretty much cornered the market. He was like a dictator of sorts in Newark around the 90s. He got arrested. They took him out of the streets. So then there was this power vacuum. So different sorts of fiefdoms started sprouting up in North. Our dad was a part of one of the criminal organizations that sprouted up. And it just got, it was just bloody, man. It was got bloody. It was very bloody. And our mom, uh, she had the wherewithal to get us out of there because she didn't want us to fall down the traps that our father did. She didn't want us to join a gang and potentially get murdered before we turned 17. So she took us down to North Carolina when we were 10. And that was a game changer because we had never seen white people like that before. Like, we, I didn't know white people existed outside of TV. So once we were in North Carolina, we started integrating with white people a little bit more. We started to live, like, sort of experience what they experienced. But that was the first time we started to feel shame. Like, we we're like, shit, we are poor and yeah. white people are rich 
and it, it, we uh, we don't have our father. Our father's a criminal. Yeah, we didn't understand. Uh, it was hard to really understand class struggle when everybody around you is black. And well, not everyone's black, but everyone's poor as well. So when everyone's poor and everyone's black, you don't really understand class struggle. But when we got to North Carolina, we were around white people who had money, and you know the class and racial struggle became even more was pronounced, more apparent. It was apparent. So you you're dealing with shame. You're dealing with abandonment issues. You're dealing with seeing violence. And our stepfather, our mom had remarried. Uh, he was a very abusive guy. He beat my mom. He beat us. He beat my little brother. So he was just a monster. He was a good cat. He was a good cat. He beat our cat. <laughs> he, was a, he was a really cruel, cruel uh, tyrant. So uh, all this shit's happening in our formative years. And we don't, we don't have, we don't know the, uh, we don't know how to speak about this stuff in our communities. Like we don't know about trauma. We don't know about, you know, how this shit causes PTSD and how you might turn to alcohol and drugs to fucking cope with the stress of, of, of growing up the way we did. So our mom eventually has to escape from that situation of abuse. So she flees back to Newark to get out of that situation. And we were like, we want to stay in North Carolina because we want to continue our education. We're in our almost our senior year. So for a year, we're living without our mom. We're not with our dad. We're going from house to house, essentially like, homeless light like i wouldn't say we were homeless but we were homeless light and that we were just going to different places like struggling for food struggling for all this stuff and it was one of the toughest years of our lives but in that year in that year of struggle we watched seinfeld it was the first time we watched seinfeld and i kid you not it changed it got us through it like i was like i want to do that I want to be a comedian i want to live in new york i want to i want to pitch stories i want to we saw the pitch i every my 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 mind was blown from Seinfeld, so I think that stuck in our minds. Eventually, we we moved back with our mom to complete our senior year in, in high school. We go back to Newark, and then we graduate from high school. We get to college, and that's when things started to really really change. Right, I think uh, that's where we came across Fred Hampton. That's where we started studying philosophy. And we watched we watched this movie, The Conformist, uh, which was a huge influence on us. It's a '70s film by Bertolucci neorealism and that movie we became obsessed with it we watched it in a philosophy class mm-hmm. and it was about a guy who was working for the fascist government and he had to take down a former professor and we just loved that movie so much and that definitely like shaped how we thought about the story for Fred Hampton so a lot of things happened in college we were also introduced to the comedy seller and we saw mm-hmm. Patrice O'Neill for the first time yeah George Carlin Carlin Bill Burr uh, right. uh, who else did we see? Uh, Charlie Murphy, Donnell Rollins. And then we used to go to the cellar while we were in college. So that kind of like sparked our stand-up uh, intrigue. Right. Uh, I like the notion that and, Seinfeld uh, saved your lives, first of all. That's just a good, that should be, that should be, the, title you. your auto, that should be the title of your autobiography <laughs> if you guys decide really, to do yeah, one. I mean, that show was quintessential. Man, S- man Seinfeld saved I our mean, lives. <laughs> I'm going to bring Jerry on the podcast and talk to him about the fact that he's personally responsible for you guys uh, still being alive. Without a doubt. <laughs> you know, sure, you, you, you guys were in the college in New Jersey, and here's the next phase, right? So you're, you're in college together. You're both studying philosophy. You know, mm-hmm. we talked before about Plato, Keith's right. dog. Maybe both of your dogs. I don't know. Maybe you share that dog. Is that just Keith's dog? I have my own dog, but I love Plato. I'm his uncle. Kenny, is your dog named like after Immanuel Kant or <laughs> No, Kant no. Or, uh, <laughs> My my dog is named Yoshi after the uh, Mario character. <laughs> okay, I was gonna say I would say Heidegger would be a good you know. 
would be a good. Uh, Heidegger is a hard name to pronounce. Right? I know, but you know, <laughs> Heidi, you know, and a Nazi. <laughs> so, and yeah, a Nazi. Right. <laughs> but you guys are into the philosophy thing, right? And then you both go to law school, and one right. of you, amazingly, you go to different law schools. And this is a theme I want to come back to in a second. But one of you guys goes to Duke, and one goes to NYU. Now, right. this is why I want to talk about this. First of all, you know, the progression from urban kids who live the life you just described. First of right. all, becoming philosophy heads is unusual, right. number one. <laughs> number two, the decision to go to law school. You know, not totally unconventional. I mean, people go to law school and, you know, I know right. philosophy majors have gone to law school. So that's not crazy. But no. everything when you guys talk about this, right, there's, you know, it's like we. We got interested in philosophy. We decided right. to go to law school. Okay, you went to different law schools. And then you both, right. I believe, get right up to the edge of graduating law school and you both drop out right before right. graduating, Right. So I just right. help me understand. Well, first of all, I want to talk about all of those things, tr truly all of those things and how they inform your comedy. But first, I want to understand this. I have no siblings. All right. So only right. adopted child. I don't understand siblings. It all freaks me out. Right. But I get that people have them. You know, <laughs> I get like that. It's it's right. more normal to have siblings than not. Twins are more unusual. Right. But you right. guys right. like take it to a pretty extreme level right. here. Right. This like. We're both do philosophy. We both do law school. We both drop out of law school at the end of our right. three years in law school. Like, is that a conscious set of choices or are you guys just so in sync that everything is just feels like you're attracted to all the same ideas and same notions that you're, I mean, I don't know that your lives are in such parallel at that point that right. I, 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 help me understand that. I mean, real talk is like our relationship was forged in the fires of poverty and, and abuse and all that shit. And during that time, all we had, obviously we had our mom and she was incredible, but you know, she's working two, three jobs, dealing with her own shit. So like when you're kids in that situation, all you have is each other, man. So he was my best friend. He was my, he's, he's my guardian angel, like ages, everything that I, I leaned on him for emotional support in that time. And so we just, we never really like confronted our relationship or, or our codependency at that point. We never really like talked about it it was just like look he's all i have man like all i have in this situation where i'm sleeping in some of a stranger's house and we have no food is all i have is this guy and i and i hope that i'm there for him as well it's just a, a bond that was right. forged and it's the one that i appreciate because i'm like if i didn't have him man i don't know where i would be right right it, it may be a little codependent but uh right. and i think that a lot of it's also fear it's like Right, right. If if we split up, what's going to happen? You know, it's like it's weird when you grow up without a father. You sort of, at least we lost sort of the guidance on how to be a black man in America. Right, uh, right, right. We didn't really have. I mean, we had uncles and we had we had black men in our lives who you know did their best, but you know you don't have your father. You know that that makes it it makes it a even harder journey so we sort of just leaned on each other you know if i was struggling with something or struggling with my my schoolwork or struggling with decisions i needed to make i would turn to kenny he was sort of like mm. he, he played the role as my brother but he also played the role as like a person who i i looked to for guidance and as we grew up we just became super 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 close and it, it's been tough to sort of like i don't even see sometimes i don't even see myself as an individual Right. I know I am an individual and I know I have my own life and I have my own girlfriend, I have my own existence, but it's like, I sort of see my relationship with him as like, it was almost like a force field from mm. dealing with the world. And now I'm, I'm much more like comfortable 
by myself, but I think growing up, right. you know, it was it was definitely right. something where I, I relied heavily on my brother to to get through some things. Well, you have your own place and, and your own girlfriend, and apparently, if you guys are both naked, you're anatomically distinct. So, um, <laughs> that, at least according to your brother. So, I, again, I'm I'm not going to delve any further into that, but I just want you to know that you are individuals. Right. But, but I, I without like riding this horse too hard. I mean, how do you like just as a totally like descriptive functional thing, like you're both in law school and you both decide to drop out before you graduate relatively late in your third year. Right. I mean, how does like that decision get made? You guys are both like experiencing the same sort of discontent with the law. You guys are both attracted to some other alternative at the same moment. Right. Do you talk that through? I understand the closeness thing as you right, guys right, just right. described it, but that's a very right. specific kind of like in sync, like synchronized swimming kind of move to, right. to do that. I'm just curious how that comes yeah. about. I mean, it's, it's a rockier picture than, than that. And I, I mean, it's, partly accurate but i was i was like going through some shit emotionally like at this stage i'm like my drug addiction is getting wild like i'm smoking and drinking doing a lot more shit than i would i had ever done so my mind is sort of like all over the place and i knew that if i had stayed in law school and as a lawyer things would have just gotten worse and i just i was just depressed my relationship was coming to an end because you could see that i'm like not as committed and not as not not to the relation, but not as committed to the law as I was. Because in my first year of law, I'm like, I think I want to do comedy. And she's like, are you insane? And I was like, no, I think I hate this shit. And I, I'm miserable. So I, I'm, I'm already grappling with like potentially leaving the law. And then I finally said, you know what? I can't. If I go down this path, I'm not going to be happy. And I got the sense that Keith wasn't happy either. And so I think we were just sort of both going through our, our moment with our Christ, a moment of crisis in the law. Keith, just out of curiosity, just because Kenny just said this thing, just to get to the parallelism thing, you can tell me if you think this is an inappropriate question. But when Kenny was in his, he just called it his drug addiction. Were you having a parallel drug addiction at the same time or were you guys on different paths with respect to that? No, I, I wasn't. My law school experience was a little bit different from Kenny's. I, I actually, on some level, I mean, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I... I adjusted to it a lot easier than, than Kenny did. I didn't overtly hate it. Were you at NYU or Duke? Which one of you guys was at NYU? I was at Duke. Was you were at Duke. I was at, I was at NYU. Well, that, that may have played a, a role, actually, because... Without a doubt. The, the setup of Duke was totally different from NYU. Right. Without a doubt. more collegial. Uh, I was able to make friends. And, you know, just being in Durham was better for my mental health than, say, being in, you know, cold New York. So... I'm sure that, that right. played a role. Right. My experience was a little different from his, but I, I was committed to becoming a lawyer. I, I thought that I really wanted to be a lawyer, but you know, it, it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. I was still very depressed. I was dealing with alcohol issues. I was drinking like crazy. A lot of law students drink like crazy. It feels like a, a trope at this point, but yeah, <laughs> it was just a lot of drinking. I, I didn't drink in college. Me either. I didn't drink or smoke or anything like that. But once I got to law school and felt that pressure and felt that stress, you know, I went right to the bottle. And uh, that shit was getting bad. And uh, I didn't get this job and I got depressed and I got real sad and finally got to my third year. And I, you know, I, I wasn't as in love with being a lawyer as I thought I was going into my first year. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't have a job lined up for me after law school. Right. And, and Kenny had got the comedy bug and he was just sort of like barking in my ear. Like, you know, maybe, maybe this is something we can do. Maybe we can, we can try to pursue stand up. To me, I was like, this guy sounds fucking nuts. 
there's, there's no way <laughs> I'm going to to waste all this time that I committed to becoming a lawyer and all the money and the time and uh, the, the stress. And like, I'm not just going to throw that all away just to stand on stage and tell, you know, twin jokes. Like, mm-hmm. I, 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 <laughs> see, I don't, this just doesn't make any sense to me. It sounds, to me, it was just crazy. But right. and he was persistent. You know, he he had a vision. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. The vision was grounded in you know substance abuse, but yeah, well, <laughs> like all the best visions are. You know? It was a vision nonetheless. It was more so than what I had. I have I what I wanted to do. I, I just like I, my mind was all discombobulated, and it just kind of like kept going and kept going, and eventually it's just like I was like, yeah, I guess it does make sense. I'm not passionate about this, right? Uh, and I was in class, and I'll never forget this. I was listening to another student talk about what he wanted, what he planned to do post law school. And he was like, I said, he looks forward to working at a law firm because he loves the grind. He loves the grind of being a lawyer. And I heard those words, and I was like, I don't love the grind. I just don't have that kind of passion in me. So when I heard that, that's when I was like, I got to quit, and I got to do something that I'm hopefully more passionate about. All right. I want to talk about comedy and I'm going to do it after this next break, but I want to ask one more question before we get a break, because Mm -hmm. you guys wrote a story that was published on Vulture, but this piece you guys wrote right after the George Floyd murder a year ago, almost a year ago now, the the piece was called Our Brother Kaizen, which is an incredibly, I I want to say to anybody who's listening to this podcast, you should go find it. Our Brother Kaizen, K-A-I-Z-E-N. It's an incredibly, incredibly powerful piece that you guys wrote, which is a story about someone you knew from childhood who eventually, you know, his top popped and he, and he ends up with a rifle walking through Newark and shooting people. And he is eventually death by copy and eventually ends up getting, getting shot himself in the process. Right. And you guys essentially, I'll, I'll try to summarize just briefly, right? The story is basically about how this guy who could easily be seen as somewhere between a nut and a domestic terrorist is obviously not someone to be admired, but is someone who, if you look more carefully at his life, there's stuff in there to be learned right. about about white supremacy, about what it's like to grow up in the kind of neighborhood you guys grew up in, and the ways right. in which your lives were not that different from his life, even though right. you guys are obviously not, you know, murderers, right? right. So just, I just, you know, for the sake o- of- Only on stage. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you guys kill on stage, as long as you can have his bomb, it just depends. Um, so just for anybody who hasn't read it, I just would love for you guys to just talk a little bit about writing that piece and what it was. I mean, I, I know what it was that motivated you, I mean, the, the, right. the, the, the Kaizen story, but just for the sake of someone who hasn't read this story, I'd love for you guys to just to kind of lay it out a little bit. What, right. as you looked at Kaizen and started to realize, you know, there was something to say about this that was not just right. about this very kind of caricatured story. What motivated right. you to do it and what you were trying to get across? I mean, he was, he was our brother, man. He was, uh, and we we knew his full story, it, not his full story. Obviously, we didn't know certain details, but we had a better understanding of this guy's life. And I think it was when we were looking at the news coverage of the incident, it was just like they just spoke about him like he was a, a monster or someone who didn't have, uh, you know, context to why he did what he did. You know, it was just he did it. He's a monster. Let's move on. He's, he's a criminal, blah, blah, blah. So just like traditional media stuff and how they portray black people and how they criminalize us without really contextualizing why this criminal activity happened. So I think we felt sort of a moral obligation to tell a fuller story because he was like us. He grew up in the same neighborhoods. He had the same sort of levels of poverty, the same sort of levels of abuse. 
He didn't have an identical twin brother that he can go on stage at the Tonight Show and tell jokes with. He didn't have those opportunities or resources. So, you know, he ended up in the situation that he ended up. And that's not to say that everyone who grows up in a situation like that will turn out to be a murderer. It's just, it, it did happen for him. So we felt like we had to, for our family, for our, our friends and for our neighborhood, we had to present a, you know, a fuller picture because we didn't want that to be his story. Keith, the headline on that piece is, our brother Kaizen, he would be called a murderer and a domestic terrorist, but to us, he was family. Our struggles with systemic racism were the same. The story actually has moments where it's very funny and you guys are obviously clever, smart writers and you present your own story kind of in passing. You'll make reference to we we dabbled with the notions of suicide or try to commit suicide. I think maybe both of you have attempted suicide or at least it's a little unclear from the piece. But you make message along the way of some of your struggles and, and try to do a very nuanced kind of discussion about things that people have a hard time talking about, like the connection between mm -hmm. the legal system and the white supremacy that's embedded in it and poverty and how those things connect up to questions of mental health and how a lot of people are actually kind of more fragile in, in their state of mental health than you might imagine. I guess I, right. I would right. love for you as we sit here, you know, amid the, the Derek Chauvin murder trial and George Floyd, people like going back and looking at that, reliving that in a lot of ways again, and, you know, another black kid shot down by a police officer who claims she mistook her gun for a taser or mistook a taser for right. a gun. You know, we're in this moment again. Um, we're always in it in some ways. Right. Just talk a little bit about when you guys, when you say our struggles with systemic racism were the same, what does that mean to you? You, you talk about George Floyd or the young brother who was just murdered, Dante Wright. When you hear these stories, I, I think sometimes folks fail to recognize that this has an effect on, on black men. When, when we see other black men get murdered by the cops, that fucks with your mind. And when you're born into a, a, a place where there's economic inequality, police brutality, all of these, uh, all of the ramifications from a system that is incredibly racist, that has a real world implications on, on your mental health. And when you grow up, are under those conditions in that situation, there are children, we were all children at some point, there are children being affected by these issues. There are children whose mental health are being adversely affected by these conditions. And it plays a role in how you grow up as an adult. I mean, you know, the violence that happens in the inner city doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know what I mean? Like, there's a reason why there's violence in the inner city. There's a reason why young black men are killing each other in the middle of the streets. It's not because we're brutes and we're criminals. It's because we're growing up in situations where sometimes it's just easier to turn to a gun and want to kill your fellow man. That's how that's how crazy it is for, for African. And there's no escape. Right. Like you got redlining, you got highways running through the ghetto. You have racist sort of housing policies that prevent black people from leaving the ghetto, going into the suburbs. You literally like there's segregation in the north and the south. And it's policy that's written into the books where it's almost like you cannot escape from this yeah. parcel of, in your neighborhood. You're stuck and, even and you're if crowded. You do, and even if you do get out, even if you are able to work your way out of a tough situation, you still have uh, that's still a situation where your, your mind and your brain and your mental health is impacted. So like you can still leave a place but still be affected by conditions and the trauma. And, and then when you see stories about George Floyd and all these other African-American men getting killed, it just it triggers 
uh, a lot of the past trauma. So it's a very messed up situation. And it's all sort of, it all comes down to there's a group in power that doesn't want to get rid of that power. And unfortunately, that leads them to oppressing a, a lot of people. And it's, uh, it's unfortunate that it's a situation that still happened to this day. But I think that that's what we mean. It's like yeah. systemic racism fucks with your brain and your mind. And that has ramifications on your mental health. And it's not surprising in those situations that, you know, when you, as we watch this thing, and we're, I'm, I'm probably, we're going to go to break right now, but like, you know, you're watching the George Floyd trial play out. And one of the things that makes me absolutely fucking craziest is to listen to people, you know, as this defense gets set up of this cop who put his knee on this guy's neck for more than nine minutes and, and clearly snuffed the life out of him. You hear these people like, well, you know, he did some, he did some fentanyl, you know, he had some fentanyl. He did some, he had some meth in his voice. I'm like, well, first of all, well, anyway, all I will say is, and this is, this is my transition to, we're going to talk about drugs on the other side of the break, but, but it's like this notion that somehow someone who, like millions of people have struggled with an opioid dependency and, right, who, right. and who did a little meth here and there. Again, right. I, I'm not passing moral judgment either way, but the idea, well, that means you should have a police right. officer's knee on your neck for nine minutes. And that all kind it's, of explains it away. Is the, it's insane. It's absolutely fucking insane. Yeah. But, but we're going to take this break now and then we're going to come back. And we're going to talk about, actually, we're going to get to comedy. And <laughs> the reason that this is a perfect transition is because the Netflix comedy special by the Lucas Brothers is called on drugs and we're going to talk about on drugs and lucas brothers when we get back from this break here on hell on high water dear republicans what's good (laughs) all drugs aren't created equal that's right we've done a lot of drugs and we've had a lot of fun that's right we did shrooms And here's a rule of thumb. You should never do shrooms with a dude who looks like you, man. I'm telling you. Stick to weed. That's right. Terrified of the police. Cop just flashes gun on us. Just wanted to take a selfie. Saw us in 22 Jump Street like this. So we realized how to solve the problem of police brutality. You just got to give every black dude a two to five minute cameo in a movie with Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. To the war on drugs. To the war on drugs. So we're back with the Lucas Brothers, Kenny and Keith Lucas, who just played the trailer from their 2017 Netflix special on drugs. Uh, God, man, you guys, you want to talk about yeah. hitting my uh, hitting my sweet spot. This is it right here. Um, <laughs> we started to, to kind of get up to the edge of comedy in the last section of the podcast here, and we got into the Seinfeld thing and then and got a little more serious. Mm-hmm. But drugs, it seems like, you know, if you look at the Lucas Brothers, oeuvre, from the Lucas Brothers Moving Company, your animated thing mm-hmm. that you did for a couple of years, you know, Dope State that you mm-hmm. guys were in, documentary series, obviously mm-hmm. a, a, a Netflix comedy special called On Drugs. So you guys, your oeuvre, your comedy oeuvre is, you know, heavily under the influence, so to speak. And I, I mean this in, a, in both a funny and, and serious way. You know, obviously there's a rich tradition of stoner comedy in the history of American comedy, you know, going back to our friends Cheech and Chong. Uh, and probably further, Carlin, obviously, prior, a lot of people, right? Some people had healthier and some people had less healthy relationships with drugs um, as, right, they, right. as they made jokes about them. But tell right. me about your relationship to drugs and in your lives and as a fertile subject for comedy and fertile prism through which everything your world is kind of refracted and reflected and how you guys think about things. I mean, drugs, drugs have fundamentally shaped my life. I mean, I was born into the drug war. I was born into the crack epidemic. I had a family members who were drug dealers. I had family members who used drugs. 
drugs have been the fulcrum of my life. I fucking got addicted to drugs. I did drugs, but I got the chance to study law where I looked at drug policy and like, it fascinates me at how much drugs are, have shaped a lot of people's lives, especially white society. I, yeah. I look at the relationship of drugs with white society and I look at the relationship of drugs with black society and I, it, it just sort of like, it doesn't make any sense to me that we use drugs at the same rates, you know, I would say, but it seems as if black people go to prison more for using and for selling. And it doesn't make any sense to me, man. Like, it's like, I mean, it makes sense to me. It's racism, but it's like, damn, why can't we use drugs in peace like everyone else? But then as we started to develop our stoner personas and as we started to get more and more invested in drugs and we realized that it was connecting to certain members of, of our society, my drug usage started to spiral. Like, I'm like, oh shit, it's not as fun and playful as, you know, Cheech and Chung may have made it. Like, there are some serious implications for putting drugs in your body. Like, why are you putting drugs in your body? I think that was the question that Keith and I became more intrigued by. It's like, okay, we're these stoner guys, but why? How do we become stoner guys? How did this happen? And I think through our comedy, through our writing, through our filmmaking, we want to unpack why people do things with their bodies that may be unhealthy. What is this notion of depression and mental health that might incentivize people for putting drugs in their bodies? And how can we mind that? How can we mind that pain for comedy? You know, how can we make it relatable? How can we get a, an addict to sit down and watch our stuff and be like, oh man, I, I get where these guys are coming from, man. And maybe I can start to question why I'm doing this to myself. So I think, you know, it's therapy for us to talk about it on stage, but it's also like we want to help other people process their addiction. We want people to process their grief and their trauma. And maybe we can help them out. Because like when I listen to Richard Pryor and I hear him talk about his cocaine usage or he talks about acid or he talks about all that shit, I'm laughing, but I know he's going through a lot of pain and yeah. I can relate to it. Or with DMX, like he just died of, a, of an overdose. But since he hit the hip hop scene, he's talked about his issues with drugs, his struggle. And it, it resonated with me. Like, I, and, and that's why his death hit me so hard. Cause like, man, I, I was invested in him surviving. I was invested in him like recovering. I was invested in his process. So I think for me, it's very important to share my struggles because there might be someone out there who's invested in my struggle. And it gives me more incentive to make sure that I, I recover. Keith, is your relationship with drugs healthy or unhealthy? Definitely unhealthy. It's weird, you know, I, I was straight edge up until law school and then you know, I finally started to dabble and drinking was became a problem first. And then I started smoking way too much weed. I didn't really care much for hard drugs, but weed was definitely, I, I was just smoking every day. And I think you can smoke in a healthy way. Right. There are people out there who know their limits and right. moderate it really well. But for me, at least, especially when things were, were a little tough out in Hollywood, I was just going crazy. But I was fortunate enough to get therapy and... Mm -hmm sort of unpack why I was smoking so much. And I knew it connected to early childhood trauma with PTSD and just like kind of losing yourself to substances. And it's been a struggle to fight against it, but it's a journey that, you know, I'm, I, I have to take because you, you see, right. I see some of my peers are dying, not just from hard drugs, but from booze or all, all sorts of substances. So it's just a matter of just like trying to find a way to confront these things without losing myself so it's definitely been a battle but you know i think i'm stronger because of it the reason i ask right is that like 
I think if you think about On Drugs, the special, it's a great, funny, fantastic. People loved it. And the reason I made the Cheech and Chong reference is understanding the point you just made about prior. No one comes away watching from watching On Drugs and thinks that this is like an anti-drug Jeremiah. They're not like, right, these guys right. are trying to like scare me straight or trying to get right. me off drugs. It's celebratory of the right. notion. Embedded right. in it is a notion that drugs can be fun. Drugs can be healthy. Drugs are not yeah. necessarily going to destroy your life. But you guys right. talk about them now in a way that is like you were cognizant of the darker side of them and the fact that they can be unhealthy, right? So I'm curious about like what your attitude is towards them again right. as a subject for comedy and whether there's a what like is part of the quest here in your own lives and in your art to sort of find a way to contextualize drugs because they are such a huge part of so many people's lives and there's so right, much right. of our economy, our culture, our criminal justice right. system that revolves around them. Is it like, trying to find a way for it's like, how do you find that balance? How do you find a way for them to be used in a healthy way as opposed to an unhealthy way? Is that what you're kind of grappling with? That's or right. Look, I think that drugs, if used in the correct context and you're not an addict, I think you can have a very fruitful relationship with drugs. I certainly don't think that the response to drug addiction should be carceral and, 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 and with a bunch of red tape and you spend the rest of your life in prison. Like, I don't think the drug war is the right response to drug usage. I think that people can have healthy relationships with drugs, just like they have healthy relationships with alcohol. Like, not everyone's an alcoholic. I don't think everyone's an addict. I don't think that we should respond with state repression if you're using drugs. So at the time of on drugs, I was in the throes of this drug phase, and I, w I was like, yeah, drugs are great. Why are people getting arrested for it? I didn't know that I was like, it was a slippery slope and it was going to get a little worse. And then I lost a friend to, you know, all that shit. And so my relationship changed. Like, I, I, I didn't see it the same way. I saw a lot of people dying around me. And then it was the opioid epidemic. And then more people were dying around me. So there was a sense, like, maybe I'm being a little irresponsible. I'm, I'm glorifying something that potentially is killing people. But then I think you have to be a little bit nuanced. You know, you have to say, like, not everyone's an addict. Not everyone's dying when they use drugs. And I think we should be able to have a healthy discussion about it. And I think we should be able to be adults about it. We don't need the state telling us that we can and cannot do it. And we don't need the state arresting us for doing it when we want to do it. I think we need to have a more nuanced conversation around drug usage, in my opinion. Right. So you guys, I saw we're doing a show in Denver at some point, a 420 show, <laughs> where apparently you guys ingested some yeah. edibles that were a yeah. little too strong. And uh, yeah. the quote that caught me was, Keith, was your quote in the story that I read about this. Like, Kenny asked me to get him a cheeseburger. And here I am walking around Denver without any clothes on trying to find him one. I could see myself walking. I was like, what am I doing? But I couldn't yeah. stop until I found that cheeseburger. Um, there's a lot of people I know who've done edibles who can relate to that. Right. Both, both the desire for a cheeseburger, the obsession with it and walking around naked trying to find one. When you read stories like that, is that now like kind of like a, th a thing of your past that you're kind of like, we're way past that now? Or are you still, oh, I'm no. not asking you like about your, about, that seems like it's a very kind of like Cheech and Chong kind of story, right? right, right oh, right. the guys who had a, they were doing a 420 show in Denver and they were too fucked up to even make it to the show. Right, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's good. It's, I mean, it's yeah. funny, right? Can you still laugh at that? Or is that like, yeah. man, that's a yeah. phase in our yeah. life in the past yeah. that we're no, done I, with? I, I think the, the true honor of being a comedian is like, you got to laugh at everything. Yeah. Right. You know, I was having the thought a couple of days ago, I was thinking about some dark things and I just kept thinking and kept thinking and I kept thinking. I was like, wait a second. All of this is comedy. These are all mm -hmm. jokes. These are, this is all material. And, yeah. and I think once you train your mind to see every situation as a potential for material, it just makes, for me at least, it makes living a lot easier. And it, it makes 
even situations like that, like, yeah, that, that's a scene in a movie. You know, that, that's a that's a joke that we can do. That's a bit that we can build on. It's like, yeah, comedy is like, uh, it's a saving grace. But also, it just allows for me to, to find a humor in, in everything. And so I, I don't want to speak for Kenny, but... No, that's the, I mean, that's exactly it. And I think about the traumatic moments. I'm like, okay, how can I turn this into a joke? Right. And not to minimize the trauma, but just to be like, well, it's, it's a challenge. It's like, how can I make these dark moments or these moments that can be perceived as dark, how can I make them humorous? Our therapist was like, you got to confront your trauma. You got to look at it. You can't look away from it. I think part of what comedy does is it forces you to look at your trauma in a manner that is a bit askew because you're like, I, I want to make a joke out of it. Obviously, you got to do the work to truly confront it and unpack it. But I do like that comedy, at the very least, forces us to have a surface level relationship with our trauma. And then you just go from there. Do you guys have the same heroes in comedy? We share a lot of the same. I mean, you know, Larry David, Chris Rock, Wanda Sykes, Chappelle. Uh, Red Fox. Red Fox. Red Fox. That's a great one. Good pull. I have no idea how many kids these days know what Sanford and Son is, but if they don't, uh, I mean, that's just amazing to me. I'm, I think about things like that. And I'm like, do these, does anybody even know about Sanford and Son anymore? Is that like, can you get that on, on HBO yeah, Max? I don't know. Who are the, yeah, it's like... I hope that there's a Sanford and Son revival. Yeah. There should be a Sanford and Son channel just dedicated to Sanford and Son. There really Sanford. should be. Um, let me play one piece of you guys, one last piece of you guys doing stand-up here. This is from On Drugs, you guys. I want to hear you guys do one more bit here because I like this one a lot. Here's the problem with America. Mm -hmm. It's income inequality. I think that's the problem. I think they need to restructure how we pay people. Yep. Like Football players, they get guaranteed contracts, right? So they'll get $100 million, but they guarantee like $40 million. I think they should do that for teachers. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Teachers, teachers should get guaranteed contracts. We finish about the time, Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Of Absolutely. Of course. That's why if we were able to overthrow the government mm -hmm. and become twin dictators, <laughs> that would be our first order of business. Uh, we would round, what would we do? Forcibly round up all the teachers. Yes. Um, <laughs> And we would bring them to a room like this. Like this. Uh -huh. And uh, we would be like teachers of America. We know you guys have suffered. So we are going to pay you $100 million. That's right. Mm -hmm. But we can only guarantee about 20000 right? <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there, that's from On Drugs. And, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot in the special that goes to, to the thing that kind of ties together a lot of the stuff we've been talking about today, which is even though the special's called on drugs and there's plenty of drug humor in it and talk about mushrooms and other stuff that, you know, we could all, again, we could talk about them all day long. If we took some mushrooms, we could talk about them even longer <laughs> because we could be here for like the next six, seven hours. Right, but right, right. in the absence of taking the mushrooms, you know, there's also a lot of like social commentary, right? Where the notion that you guys with your comedy career, that you also are key part of the, the creation of Judas and the Black Messiah, these are not like, at first glance, it's like the Lucas brothers, they're involved <laughs> in this very political thing about Fred Hampton. And right. then you listen to what you guys are doing on stage a lot of times. It's like, well, it's all there. You right. guys are weaving in, in, right. in a very Richard Pryor-esque way, I would say, you know, Pryor, right. you know, had a lot of drug humor, but also the social and political edge to his work was, you know, 
what made Pryor brilliant, right? right. And that's true of Chappelle too. So I'm interested right, right. you guys just talking about that as you go forward. I know you guys have been out at one of the comedy clubs in New York recently, like working out some bits. I'm, I'm told mm -hmm. reliably that you bombed. Um, I, think <laughs> I, was told, I think I saw one of you guys saying that for yourselves. So I'm allowed we to say that. A good time. We had some good ones. I, I think yeah. we went two for, two for six. Yeah. So, like, you know, talk about where you want to take your comedy now and whether that social political kind of humor is where mm -hmm. you think you're going now in the wake of, you know, in the world we now live in, which is a, you know, again, I mentioned the George Floyd thing. It's still the pandemic is going to come to an end someday. But this has been an apocalyptic, dark fucking time in America Dude, the last oh, yeah. year. I mean, Dude. we're coming out of this pandemic. It's who knows there. You've got the racial justice stuff that's still very oppressive and present in people's minds crisis at the border, all this other shit, you know, as we come into this new phase post Trump, what are you guys thinking about where you want to take your comedy and how much of that do you feel like it's in sync with, in fact, right. the Jews and the black Messiah experience? I think we've been anticipating this moment for a while now. We wear the military jacket. So I think we are like, look, our comedy is not, we don't want to be, we're not confrontational. We're laid back. We're cool. All that stuff. But we, we want to be taken seriously, man. I think we want people to acknowledge our contributions to comedy, to film, and we want to be respected as an act. I feel like there's been some sort of like, sometimes dismissive, sometimes like, oh, they're a twin act. They can't possibly achieve the level of authenticity of a, of, of a prior, of, of a Chappelle. Of, and, and I'm not saying that we'll ever be that, but I think that I want to at least be respected for what we've done so far. And I think an Oscar nomination, you can't help but say, all right, these guys are, <laughs> something's working because these guys are a part of a movie that got six Oscar nominations. I think for us now, it's like, we want to put it all together. We've been working very hard to establish ourselves as comedians, as writers. Finally, this is our 10th year. I think we're finally sort of, it's all sort of coalescing now. Our POV is sort of uh, more defined and having gone through Judas is even more defined. So it's like, I think we're going to have a year that's uh, exceptional for us because we're going to do the work and we're committed to being the best that we can be. And we want to make people laugh. Like yeah. we still love making people laugh. We love being on stage and talking to people and having, hearing the laughter. And I think we're going to double down on that. Keith, when you were talking about two out of your six outings at a comedy club were good, like what was working? Like what's the Lucas Brothers shit that's now like you're laying it down. You're like, OK, this is the direction. This is the shit that's hitting and we got to go further in this direction. You know, we're just a lot more confident and maybe that maybe having an Oscar nomination just makes you more confident. We have a willingness to explore things that we probably wouldn't have explored in the past. Like we're talking a little bit more about Newark. We're talking a lot more about the political scene in Newark. We're talking about our relationship to, to the city. We're talking about our relationship with our mom and our dad a little bit more. Like We're just being a bit more honest with, with our material. And we're having more fun on stage. You know, I, I think when, even on our special, if you watch it closely, like you, we're not really interacting as much as I feel we should be doing. If with each other, you mean? Yeah, with each other. And I, I feel like now, even when we're not doing great on stage, we're, we're, we have like this in this internal dialogue with one another that I think makes our set even more rich. So like even at the cellar, like we, we're just having a lot of fun on stage and we're communicating more. And, you know, I'm, I'm noticing now my brother, he, he has an ability now to just like riff a little bit more off stage with the audience. And so like we're incorporating audiences a little bit more and I'm just more comfortable on stage. And it, that just takes time. 
Yeah, I'm loving it now, man. I'm I'm loving I'm loving the back and forth that we have. Our timing is better. Our our materials better. Yeah, everything's just clicking now. You guys are great to take the time, and you know it's a it's a cool moment when an act or an artist or a writer or a performer of any kind when they sort of tip over, you know, from that thing where they're kind of culty and people know them and people think they're cool. And, and you're like, they're a little bit of a secret, you know, we're like, yeah. Hey, you guys, Hey, you know, yeah. these guys, these guys, Lucas brothers, they're pretty cool. Like, you know that shit. And people go, who the fuck are Lucas brothers? You go, Oh, you gotta <laughs> check these guys out, you know? And then there's a month. All of a sudden everybody's like, Oh, Lucas brothers, Lucas brothers, Lucas brothers, yeah. you know? And you, if you're a fan of that act before they cross over, you know, you sort of have that moment of regret for a second where they're not your secret anymore, you know, yeah, they don't feel yeah, like yeah. your secret. But then you think about it and go, you know, I'll always know that I was there ahead of the rest of the crowd on this <laughs> or ahead of a lot of people. And uh, it feels to me like you guys are right on that brink right now. We're like, this is going to be not just because of the Academy Award nomination, but things are right. coming together for you guys in a really good way. And I say congratulations again. The movie's the movie's fantastic. It's great to see a dream realized and then not only to see it realized, but have it be honored and respected right, and tribute right. to in the way that this movie has been for you guys. So that's fantastic. But Thank I'm you. looking forward to the day, hopefully soon, when it'll feel like a little safe to go to the comedy cellar and yeah. see you guys and not have to yeah. worry about coming back with a deadly disease right. uh, because I can't, I can't imagine what you guys, if you got, you guys getting more confident and feeling better about your shit. I think you guys are going to make some magical shit going forward. So uh, thanks again. Thank for you, being man. Here. Thank you for taking the time to interview us. This was awesome. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to the Lucas Brothers for being with us. If you like this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us, rate us and review us on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered the podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer and Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>